Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to episode 118 of the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from the OpenStack Summit here in Hong Kong, and uh, returning once again, you got your streak going, man. Uh, <laughs> Kenneth Hoy returning as co-host uh, for the shows this week, and uh, we've got Scott Lowe. Scott, how are you doing today, man? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. So, for those that don't know, um, why don't you give everyone a little bit about your background um, in the virtualization community, first of all, and then yeah. around the OpenStack community, and, and specifically NYSERA and what you got going on over there. Sure, sure. So I've been in the uh, VMware virtualization space probably 10 years now. It's been a while. Um, you know, worked uh, where, you know, you and I met first yep. time E-plus so many years ago, helping build their their uh, VMware practice up. Uh, moved to EMC um, you know, a few years ago. Spent three years there on their VMware-focused affinity team and then joined VMware's Network and Security Business Unit, which was the group that that came out of uh, the NYSERA acquisition earlier this year. And along the way, you know, I've been blogging and speaking at the conferences and writing books and, and that kind of jazz. So it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, but, you know, it was last year before I left EMC that I started focusing a little less on vSphere and a little more on uh, some of the open source technologies like uh, OpenStack, OpenVSwitch, um, some related networking technologies like OpenFlow and, and others. And that's kind of what brought me into the uh, the uh, network and security business unit working on NVP and now NSX. Very cool. So you, you've got a very interesting. We've had Cody Bunch on before. We've you know we we've been talking to to Ken here off and on. And one of the big things that that seems to be, there's a lot of interest in the community in that shift of moving from virtualization, specifically vSphere, over to products such as OpenStack. And so so the both of you actually had a session. Um, and I stood in the back of the room for a little bit. Um, <laughs> I was kind of in and out. I had some other commitments, right. but yeah, no worries. Um, really well attended. And it, and I saw you guys who were kind of mobbed like rock stars afterwards with questions. And so, you know, give everyone a little bit of an idea of the content because I think it really hit the right note technically. Of it was, it was technical enough. But at the same time, there's a lot of sessions here at times where it's almost a little too deep or it's a developer who, quite frankly, maybe shouldn't be up in front of the screen just typing console commands that you can't read onto a screen. And so you guys kind of hit that right level of getting stuff out technically, but also getting... yeah. Yeah, the message out. So what uh, kind of content was in the session? So, uh, you know, Kenneth did a great job helping prepare the content for the session. We had a number of calls prior to it. And to be frank, we were kind of, you know, at least I was up against the wire. Kenneth had his stuff done, but I was still working <laughs> on mine on the flight over from San Francisco. But the, the, the challenging part... I, I did a lot of my slides you, okay, on the plane. All right, I, I don't feel so bad then. The, the challenging part was striking that right balance between the technical content and the person-oriented content, at least for me. I don't know about for you if you ran into the same problem, Kenneth. But because naturally, as, as engineers and as technologists, we kind of want to start talking about the bits and bytes and right. config right. files and right. parameters and all that kind of jazz. And really what we were what we were trying to hit, and I think we, we hit the right balance, so thanks for the feedback, was more, okay, you know, yeah, there's lots of bits and bytes, config files and parameters, all that kind of jazz, but how do we approach this from a from a conceptual perspective and help people understand 
if you are in the VMware space and you want to move into OpenStack or you're looking at OpenStack or evaluating it for your environment or whatever, it's 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 just different. And you yeah. you know you kind of have to understand where it came from and why it's different. And at the same time, if you're an OpenStack person and you're trying to explain what it is you're doing to somebody who doesn't understand that, it's like. You know, you, yeah. you almost need the Rosetta Stone. Right, right. And that's, yeah. I think that's what we were trying to create. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, I think it was helpful, with, obviously, Scott and also myself, we sort of both came from the VMware side first, right, as opposed to, you know, being open source, doing open stack, and then trying to figure out vSphere. So I think it's helpful because we, we kind of, we remember what it's like to try to learn open stack when your whole paradigm is vSphere. Yes, So I <laughs> yes. think we were able to say, okay, this is what it looks like in vSphere. This is how it looks like an open stack. Yeah. You know, and what, you, what do you need to know to, to make that transition? Sure, sure. And yeah. so what are some of the, the light bulb moments for a virtualization person going to OpenStack or the other way around? Like an OpenStack person kind of assumes this about VMware mm-hmm. or vice versa. I know there's a lot of like hypervisor differences and features and functions mm-hmm. and architecturally there's some differences, right? But what well, are some of the, the big ones that pop to everyone? It seems I, like? I think... I think one of the points that, that um, Kenneth has made a number of times, both in some of the, the blog articles he's written and he made it in the session as well, which was great, is that people tend to um, kind of just, they, they say it's VMware and OpenStack, right? And we're really, you know, when we're talking about this, primarily it's vSphere right. and OpenStack. Right. And so there, there's this um, lack of understanding that, you know, VMware has a lot of different products, right? You know, vCloud Director and vCloud Automation Center and, and NSX, NSX yep. and, and I mean, all these things, right? But when it, you know, and, and, and a lot of those things fit into OpenStack in a variety of ways, and that's fine, right? But when, predominantly when you're talking about, um, you know, VMware's products and OpenStack, it's typically in the context of vSphere and right. OpenStack, right? Yep. And the, I think the light bulb moment for me, at least, was um, properly kind of placing them where they belong in the overall mm-hmm. picture, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, vSphere is a great product and has a lot of advantages for a lot of different, you know, workloads, right? But it it's not a direct competitor against OpenStack. OpenStack is more of an overarching framework right. into which vSphere can fit. Yeah. And then once you, once you kind of get that, like, you know, clicks in your head, then you begin to say, oh, okay, well, now I begin to understand where these two work together, where there's overlaps, right? Yeah. Um, where it's complementary, that kind of thing. Yep. At least that was for me. Um, now I don't know. What about you, Kenneth? Yeah, I think very similar. I think I think one of the light bulb moments was someone telling me OpenStack is not a hypervisor. Mm-hmm. So I think that's so a lot of VMware people. That's that's what they think. They they go they think OpenStack is just a hypervisor. Sure. When it's really an orchestration layer on, on yeah. top of hypervisors. People people just they tend to lump it together, right? Yeah. They say they say OpenStack, and they kind of automatically assume that it's um, it's KVM. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. When the reality is, it could be KVM, it right. could be Zen, right. it could be Hyper V, it could be vSphere. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, which I think is one of the cool things about OpenStack, honestly. But that's a, probably a different different sure. discussion for a different day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and to be fair, though, right? It's some of that is actually uh, enforced in a certain sense by the open source community. Right. Where they basically have a bias against vSphere. Yes. <laughs> so so when yeah. they talk Imagine about OpenStack, right? yeah. yeah. So when they talk about OpenStack. They always want to talk about in the context of something like KVM. Sure. Yeah. You know, so so they kind of perpetuate that myth a little bit. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. And I, I think probably for me one of the biggest things, and, and I happened to, uh, when I was in the back of the room, so so another topic is this 
you know, it, again, it keeps coming up over and over, and there's T-shirts at the shows and everything. It's concept of pets versus cattle, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the workloads, and is the workload a good fit for the environment kind of mm-hmm. thing, right? And But also... Because, you know, the three of us kind of grew up in very much the pets environment, right? Yep. And and at times, everyone kind of thinks, well, you know, OpenStack has to fit for pets because we grew up in that pets environment. And, and we, a lot of people kind of almost equate it as a vCloud mm-hmm. director com- competitor. But at the, at the same time, it's, you know, it's really not. But then... As time goes on and as the products are advancing and as you get more and more vSphere support for more and more functionality, mm-hmm. is OpenStack becoming a in pets versus cattle or is it pets and cattle at some point? So I, I think Because <laughs> everyone, everyone seems to want it to be, yeah. unless you're cloud scaling or... You know, right, right, right. Of course, Some of these of others, course. right? Yeah. <laughs> that have a vested interest in cattle. Right, of course. Right. My, my personal take on this, right, so this is not a, a company position or anything like that. Um, my personal take on this is that as OpenStack matures and, and evolves, it's going to grow into an and scenario, right? It's going right. to be pets and cattle. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna, to, the, the community and, and the vendors that are involved in the project are going to end up building the necessary um, infrastructure. And a lot of it's already there mm-hmm. to begin to have... Um, useful multi-hypervisor environments. I mean, we, you know, NSBU maintains a multi-hypervisor OpenStack cloud internally, right? Yeah. But but for a lot of organizations, there's just this overhead of different disk image types and, and all this kind of jazz, yeah. right? But I think the, the, the community, the open source projects, uh, the vendors involved, they're all going to help kind of make this possible to actually have pets and cattle so that you can have um, these long-lived workloads, single-instance, um, stateful workloads that aren't going to you know, dynamically scale and aren't right, going right. to recover if, they are, if there's yeah, a failure, right. that kind of thing, right? right? And then there's also going to be a class of workloads, which are the new generation workloads that are built stateless, that are built scale-out, yeah. that are built distributed, um, all those kind of things. And, right. and, and it, I think that, my, again, my personal take is that OpenStack is going to have to embrace right. both sides to truly be yeah. kind of... What everybody is looking for. Yeah, and I think you and you and you and Brian Aaron has done a good job with some of the things you've done in Cloudcast, kind of hitting, the, pushing it home that the fact that um, Twitter and Facebook isn't going to make all the money for OpenStack, right? It's, <laughs> right. it's going to be, you know, the banks and the, right. and the insurance companies that have a whole lot of Oracle, right. a lot of VMware, and they can't just get rid of it, right? So, but and I think you're starting to see that change. You know, something that flipped a little bit in the OpenStack community. If you look at like someone like a Piston uh, and a Morantis, right? They kind of, they started out, right, with just the next generation workloads, and now they're suddenly talking about either kind of building in HA right. with KVM, or yeah. they're, like it's in the case of Morantis, they're actually are partnering with FeeSpit. Yeah. Same thing with Ubuntu. Yeah. They say, yeah, we're going to fold FeeSpit into OpenStack right. to meet every workload, not just next gen workloads. Sure, yep. sure. Yeah. And... and, and so I'll, one more question about this, and then we'll kind of flip over to yeah, no uh, Nasira. So, you know, when it comes to, again, kind of going back to your session, like you're saying, a lot of people, when they think OpenStack, they immediately assume KVM under the covers. And if they assume KVM, they think a certain set of functionality. Um, but at the same time, vSphere, it isn't necessarily like that, you know, one hyper, you just pull one out and you put the other one in. So... You know, for the people that are potentially new to that, what are some of the architecturally like features under the covers mm-hmm. at the hypervisor level differences between KVM and VMware? Like you, I, you mentioned like HA, right? And you right. guys were doing some slides right. on HA, and so tell me a little, tell everyone a little bit about 
what are the things you have to consider if you're using KVM or you're using VSphere. Yeah. So it really comes you know, kind of back to that discussion we were having about the kind of applications. Are these stateless scale-out applications? Are they stateful single mm-hmm. instance applications? And when you're trying to expand into the enterprise and you're dealing with stateful single instance applications that don't have this new age model of, of how they're built, then you have to build some resiliency and some flexibility at the infrastructure level mm-hmm. because it doesn't exist in the application level. Exactly. Yeah. The application is either it's either a COTS application and you don't have any access to change it, right. or it is an application that is evolved over time and it's simply just too expensive to, re- right. to re- you know, yeah. redo everything from scratch, right? So that's where, um, with the Havana release, being able to kind of mask um, cluster architectures, vSphere cluster architectures as a single Nova Compute instance, which brings advantages that I'll describe and also has some disadvantages. Mm-hmm. The advantages it brings is that we're, we're masking HADRS type functionality, which means that we can now take advantage of that at the infrastructure layer for right. workloads that need it. Um, DRS in particular, I think, is, is really beneficial because right now you could end up with hotspots inside your Nova Compute um, nodes where, you know, okay, yeah, there's capacity here and it placed a thing there, but then you've got the noisy neighbor, you know, kind of scenario and, and that hypervisor becomes overloaded and the hypervisor sitting right next to it is potentially, you know, uh, uh, less less busy, right? Yeah. Um, and, and if we leverage something like DRS inside a vSphere cluster, we can actually kind of balance yeah. that out, right? right? Mitigate some of the noisy neighbor effects mm-hmm. um, and do that all in a way that's that's kind of masked or abstracted away from the open stack orchestration layer. Now, the disadvantage, of course, is that there's a loss of visibility there in terms of, you know, the Nova schedule only sees a single instance. Right. It doesn't know how to gauge capacity for a 32-node cluster that is masquerading as a single hypervisor, <laughs> yeah, you know, sure, that kind right. of thing, right? Sure. So, you know, we're, we have developers that are going to be working on addressing that, and, and you know, blueprints are underway, all that kind of jazz yeah. for for how we present that kind of stuff. Right? But it's it's that kind of stuff being able to kind of bring that those added infrastructure resiliency services, but do it in a way that's that's transparent to OpenStack, I think is a real value add for, for yeah. customers who need to support those t- those Absolutely. class of applications. Yeah. And do you think that's an Ice House version or is that a uh, J version? I don't even know what the yeah. J name is. I don't, I don't, I don't you know, know that one yet. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly don't know. I think that they would they would probably love to have it in Ice House, but I think uh, it may be farther out. So I um, I honestly don't don't have a, a clear clear frame on what the blueprints are going to cool. show up. So. so, so Ken, for you, what's the probably number one difference that you end up explaining to customers yeah, when so it comes to KVM versus sure. vSphere? So it's interesting. Well, I actually got a deck that I use for vSphere, similar to the one I did with Scott. Mm-hmm. And one of the sections I have is titled, What's Wrong with OpenStack? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, right? Yeah. And, and basically, that's where I go into the what do you mean it doesn't do this? Yeah, sir? what you do you mean it doesn't do this? <laughs> one of the things I think, particularly talking with vSphere people, is to say, look, you need to understand the underlying philosophy for, for, for this architecture. Sure. Right? In, in vSphere world, the VM is all in point. Right? Because that holds that one app, instance of the application. And I talk, in OpenStack, they could put in HA, and they may put in HA anyway, eventually, with KVM. But it just isn't that important right now, because the idea is, all these VMs are, distrib- are disposable and distributed. So, if one is if one's having problems, don't fix it; just kill it. Right. We, you know, create another one and attach it to the database, and you're done, right? So, um, I, what I find is, like, explain that to them, that underlying philosophy. Then, then the lights go off, and you go, "Oh, that's why." Right. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. because you guys can't do it; it's partly because you don't want it, you don't care about doing it. Right. You know, and I think that 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 underlying philosophy is also why there's. To me, there were all these threads that were connected that weren't clear at first yeah. until I got in and started really kind of looking at the underlying philosophy. So people talk about DevOps, and it's almost always talked about in conjunction with 
OpenStack type deployments. And that's because of the fact that you've got these disposable VMs and you need to reapply configuration and, yeah. and do right. it. You have a tool synergy. Right, that right. Exactly. In, in and and I, I think that understanding that underlying philosophy of how OpenStack works and why it was built the way it was helps explain why there are these. Um, you know these affinities between certain tool sets and and mindsets in in yeah. the space. And if if you're outside the OpenStack community, that might be, you know, you might be thinking, why are these things always talked about in the same context? And right, right, that might help. Right. Gotcha. Okay, so let's flip over to, to this here for a little while. So so Scott, first of all, I guess let's start at the start. Nicira NSX. What is it, and why should we care? And then we'll go <laughs> deep from there, right? Because we. we because you know, some a lot, I'm assuming a lot of people probably know, but just in case, yeah, give everyone yeah, yeah. the absolutely, absolutely. So the, the 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 brief history of of VMware NSX, you know, obviously it came out of the Nicera acquisition last year, um, and Nicera itself was you know co-founded by Martin Casado and, and others out of the whole group at Stanford that did the work with that became OpenFlow and, and launched the SDN industry. Um, and, and the idea behind it was uh, it's very synergistic with what we what we see in OpenStack because that was the ability to provide basically network as a service. Now, I'm not a big fan of the as a service moniker. <laughs> I think it gets overused. So the acronym as a service thing that uh, Jonathan Bryce threw up yesterday was was pretty good. Or was it Tuesday? Anyway, I lose track of the days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, you don't like this uh, podcast as a service? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, but uh, the idea was to be able to say, I want to be able to programmatically, in conjunction with my compute workloads, be able to deploy network connectivity and network services uh, in a very rapid, very flexible, very automated way. Right. right? Um, do that in a way that decouples it from the underlying hardware infrastructure so that the customer has flexibility in how they architect it and how they provision it in terms of like what equipment they're going to use, right? Um, and, and then, like I said, you do this in such a way that we could integrate with a number of, of kind of up the stack solutions. You know, OpenStack was an initial early target. CloudStack is already supported. Mm-hmm. Um, OpenStack supported through Neutron and 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 continuing to explore. You know, where does it make sense to have additional integrations? But that's you know, in kind of the, the quick uh, explanations. That's what it is. It's it's intended to be basically be a network as a service platform to do that and, and allow customers to be much more rapid and much right. more automated in how they how they provide network connectivity, network services. Sure, and and. So, what are some of the big kind of use cases that you're seeing, and where's the customer demand around NSX today? Yeah, well, there's there's huge, huge demand for which we're, we're very thankful. Um, uh, you know, there there are a lot of like initial fits, and I think there's because we use the term network virtualization, and we use that term because the term SDN is just so yeah. it's so convoluted. I mean, everybody uses it <laughs> right, for everything. Right. It's like mm-hmm. cloud was three years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we use the term network virtualization, and because it's VMware talking about network virtualization, people then begin to make this automatic assumption that it's like server virtualization. Right. And so when they make that assumption that it's like server virtualization, then they begin to make the same assumption that the that the the uh, benefits out of that are the same. And, okay. and, and it's not, right? Yeah. Like, when we look at server virtualization... from the hardware provides a certain set of benefits in a server virtualization context, which yeah. may or may not apply to a network That's absolutely correct. That's absolutely yeah. correct. You know, one of, the ben- one of the immediate, like, obvious benefits you saw in, in server virtualization was consolidation, right? right. Reducing the number of servers in your data center. Right. Network virtualization with, with NSX <laughs> isn't going to reduce the number of switches in your room. Right. You know, it <laughs> right. doesn't work that right. way. So kind of one of the immediate benefits that customers see is this ability to be very rapid 
um, and very quick about making network changes. So where we see the most customer fit is in environments where the customer has a rapidly changing environment, and that rapidly changing environment could be driven by any number of scenarios. Um, in a lot of cases, we look at service providers, telcos, mm-hmm. um, or, or large IT organizations that act as a service provider to their internal business units, yeah. and therefore they need to be able to respond very quickly to changing customer demands. So it's really more about dynamic data paths. Yes. And flow. Yes. yes. Being able to dynamically establish, very, very quickly be able to establish a, a logical network or a virtual network, whichever term you want to use, that defines the connectivity and the flow of traffic and the services that need to be instantiated for that particular workload, customer, whatever. So can you give an example of like a, a use case where it's having that kind of flexibility it would be, be helpful? Um, so, well, just think um, think about you know, what we've seen here in, in, in OpenStack, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think you were... I don't know if you hung around for my demo yesterday, did, yeah. right? Uh, in the demo theater where I was showing off the vSphere integration with uh, uh, the Havana release. But um, the ability to go in for a tenant or, or a provider, like right. an operator, to be able to go into the OpenStack interface and say, I need a provider network or I need right. a tenant network, right? Mm-hmm. And just click, right? I mean, yeah. so uh, if, you right. just, if you just look at just the, open, like just the OpenStack use case for customers who are deploying OpenStack clouds, the ability for tenants to go in and say, I need a network, I want that subnet to be this, I want it right. to have this connectivity, I want a router to connect this subnet with this subnet, go. Yeah. And have all that driven on the background, and they, they don't need to have any awareness of the underlying physical infrastructure, because right. it's right. completely abstract. Now, that's not to say that the physical infrastructure isn't important, right? It right. is, just as the, you know, the compute nodes are important when you, when you use iVisor. But the, the provisioning and the consumption of that is decoupled in a way that right. it's very, very rapid. So operationally, you know, you're not having to SSH into every single switch to, to make the configuration. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. You know, <laughs> that brings it, back some nightmare days yeah. of Scott and I on site. Oh, customers. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, oh, no, wait. Hold on. What switches are these? Okay, let's get the PDF for the manual. Let's do the VLANs. <laughs> yeah. Okay, how do we track these again? You know? yeah, right. <laughs> what was the command for this switch versus right. that switch? Oh, yo. Different, different you got, versions. You got, yeah. you got 20 switches, 19 of them are uh, uh, right. set to 10, one gig, and then there's one that's auto-negotiating. Yes. It breaks yes. everything. Yes. Complete, <laughs> com- complete aside, so, so the number one one we ever saw was, and it's actually in your first book. We won't say the customer, but do you remember the, oh, the 18... The 18 Nicks, yes. 18 Nicks in a box. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> is, they, they didn't yeah. even trust VLANs. They wanted physical... They wanted physical ports. separation. Yes. That's right. So, <laughs> indeed, that was crazy. That was crazy. But anyway. And, uh, so so let, let me ask you this then. Where do you think everything's going to go? Because, you know, it's, it's funny. All you hear is like... All these new technologies are coming out, and it's cloud, and now sudden cloud's old. Now it's everything's SDN, and that, you know. But at the same time, then you turn around, and you go, "Oh, it's early days. Oh, cloud's in early days. SDN's in early days." Right. And it's like, "Well, is it old? Is it early days?" Like, yeah. you know, and and, right. and like, where do you think SDN or network abstraction is going to go? Long term, and is it going to trickle down to say some of those enterprise use cases where they tend to, they do tend to move slower, mm-hmm. and maybe they don't mm-hmm. like? Is there a need for SDN in say a, you know a steady state enterprise kind of environment where you know mm-hmm. they may or may not see that agility? Sure, may not sure. be the primary use case. Is there other use cases maybe developing or other needs? Well, so down the road, you know, I think there's I think there's a way to look at this. There's there's um, you know, a variety of use cases here. So one of the use cases that we haven't um, we haven't really pushed on so far that I think is actually a really good use case, and there's been some discussion about it, is, is in the dev test environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you want the ability to have developers 
or you want developers to have an environment that looks exactly like production, but of course it can't look exactly like production because if it did, then that would be a problem, right? right. But if we can abstract all that away and encapsulate an exact replica of a production environment for them to do their deployment in, right. and then you transfer the workload from there into that deployment, maybe that, that production environment is a, a quote-unquote traditional virtualized environment, sure. right? Using whatever you know virtualization method the company uses. Um, but if, if we can say, oh, here's, here's a way for you to spin up you know, 10, 15, 20, 100 development environments that look exactly the same, right. that are an exact copy of production, and you can do all your development and testing and all that kind of jazz, and then just migrate the application in, even even down to the, having like identical IP addresses, right? right? So that they could totally eliminate any possibility of a change occurring when they move from test of app into production. Right. That's a, that's one use case that's very powerful. And, and you know, uh, but at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, when if you're in an environment where there is no test dev, right? Mm-hmm. There is no envi- no no subset of the environment that's that's fast moving, that needs that rapid change. Mm-hmm. Then um, you know network virtualization or even SDN for that matter, you know kind of quote unquote traditional SDN like OpenFlow forwarding rules into switches. None of that really is necessary, and and that's I think that's where we as technologists have to remind ourselves that it's really about the business, right? right. You know, yeah. if the business doesn't have any value in deploying right. OpenFlow enabled switches. Yeah. then they don't need to deploy OpenFlow-enabled switches. Right. I mean, it's simple as that. Yeah, and that's, you know, one of the things I see very commonly is, you know, the, especially at these conferences, at times it just turns into such a huge echo chamber yes. of <laughs> everyone going around going, well, but that's neat and that's shiny and that's the new thing, so we got to go do that. But at the same time, no one's necessarily thinking back and kind of going, well, but do my customers necessarily want that, need that, will benefit from it? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that whole matching up of customer requirements, application requirements, business line, you know, actually keeping the lights on at a business versus mm-hmm. installing the new shiny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I, I agree with you, Aaron. It's, it's easy or easier at a conference like this when there's lots of energy and lots of idealism right. and lots of excitement about the, you know, the the thing that you're pursuing or the next you know generation of whatever it is you're building and that kind of thing but we really have to constantly challenge ourselves to say sure. okay that's technologically very very interesting and very very cool right. and I'd love to play with it but right. do my customers actually have a need for that or does my organization right. actually have a need for that right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yep. I have a, so I have a question about that right speaking of business use cases right? so one of the things that's perennial is just Enterprises, this idea: How do we do disaster recovery or disaster avoidance? Right. And I, m- I remember when re- re- virtualization first came out with VXLAN and with you know with uh, Nicera, was this whole talk of now we can extend the, the network across multiple sites and mm-hmm. you can just kind of press a button and everything fails over and you're good. Yeah. So I don't hear that quite as much anymore. Where, where do we stand with that? So the the um, the ability to do that is certainly possible with the technologies that NSX uses, yeah. right? So, I mean, if we look at an encapsulation um, protocol like the VXLAN or any of the others that are out there, right? If we look at how network virtualization works and, and, and that sort of thing, yeah, we could certainly take logical networks that span two different physical locations and then you could potentially fail over. I think one of the reasons we don't talk about that is, is one, you know, the, the easy button doesn't exist, That's right? right? <laughs> Nobody's written the easy yeah. button yet. Um, so while easy these technologies isn't nearly as easy as no, no, it it's not right. Absolutely. <laughs> so while the technologies are there, um, you know, nobody has even VMware still, still doesn't have, you know, how are we actually going to you know, 
yeah. move forward with this, right? The other thing that I think it's important, and, and I do this when I talk to customers about that that's kind of very scenario is um, it's almost like you are now applying uh, an old paradigm to a new world. Okay. Okay? And here's why. With um, NSX, we can actually create virtual networks. And on the edge of that virtual network, we can have a router that establishes a VGP or OSPF routing adjacency. Right. right. So then it can then publish the address space inside that virtual network to the outside world so that the rest of the outside world just says, oh, hey, here's a route to this network and here you go. Right. If I can do that, then I no longer need to stretch. Now wow. I can just fail over and the BGP OSPF adjacency addresses, uh, advertises that the network is now available at a new endpoint mm-hmm. and the routing tables converge typically in a couple of minutes right. and I'm done. Right, so it's a different way of thinking as opposed sure. to stretching the layer two kind right. of scenario, yeah. which is is the, the and, and a, you know kind of to your point about the old new kind of thing. You know that was the old way of doing things. Yeah. Now we have a, a potentially much better way, a much more robust way right. of actually handling that. Because if I do this failover with a BGP OSPF routing adjacency, I don't have to deal with tromboning. Yeah, I don't right. have to deal with right. stuff like Lisp or any of the rest of that because this is just taking advantage of the way IP um, uh, you know handles traffic. Right, yeah. so. Oh. That, yeah, I think that's very cool. Yeah. It's, it's it's funny because yeah, those those layer two stretch clusters just always seem like uh, just really you know pushing the limits, mm-hmm. and it was always to you know you could do it yes, mm-hmm. but you yeah. know the hardware about, that it took yeah. you know yeah because I mean you were the you were the, you were kind I, of the stretch I, clusters I was, guy. I was, yeah, right? I was a couple of guys a couple of years. <laughs> I was the stretch cluster guys, and you know, I was working with the Vplex team, and we were talking about yeah. stretch clusters and all that kind of jazz, and and yeah, you know you you could do that, but there were all these design considerations. Yeah. The, the problem was, you know, um, that a lot of times... Because Layer 2 expected a certain level exactly. of latency or, you know, yeah. like low latency. And, 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 you know, Layer 2 behaving one way, but then you put Layer 3 on top of it, and then yeah. the behaviors became unexpected yeah. and created yeah. other uh, other behaviors that you didn't want. You know, so I think that if, if, we can, if we can leverage the sort of foundational building blocks that make the Internet the... You know, kind of what it is. I mean, it's not perfect, obviously, right? right but right. it's very—it works remarkably well, which yeah. is how all of you are now listening to us. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, uh, if we leverage those kinds of building blocks, you know, scalable layer three networks, well-established routing protocols, and that kind of thing, I think we can actually accomplish a lot of the things that we were trying to accomplish before over here, yeah. in a in a better way here. You know, if you look yeah. at something like a scale-out storage system that has multiple replicas of data, right? Right. right. You know. Swift is not the right mechanism to run instances because of the, you know, the performance, right? But something like a Swift, where yeah. you have multiple copies, and maybe that's a Ceph, and maybe that's something else. I don't know, yeah, right? Sure. Isilon, yeah, Isilon, yeah. or you know, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, but if you look at some sort of uh, you know distributed scale-out system where the data resides in multiple places, and you have an orchestration system like OpenStack or something yeah. else that has that awareness, and then you have this network virtualization that allows us to fail over blocks of address space, right? Yeah. Then you know, disaster recovery becomes, and even disaster avoidance becomes yeah. much easier than kind of the convoluted way we were jumping through yeah. hoops earlier. In my opinion, no, no, that's interesting. I think I think the network piece has always been the real sticking point, right? Because you know, once you've got that, um, replicating the data was yeah. decently right. easy. But I think it's sometimes time-consuming. But now with the next, yeah. you know, the stuff like MongoDB databases, yeah. where we're replicating, you know, to three different locations, right? And then the and then the idea that the that the VMs the servers are disposable you just recreate them on the side. The one piece that was always going to be a trouble was how do I get yeah. access over yeah. the network to these to this new environment, right? Yeah, and something fails. So that's really cool being able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's a you know uh, a use case that we're we're continuing to explore yeah. and 
figure out how exactly we want to handle it. But yeah. you know, there, there's a there's a lot of very interesting things. It, it, one of the um, just one of the fascinating things. One of the reasons I'm super stoked about where I am right now mm-hmm. is I get to work for Martin, and Martin is just a super visionary guy, right? right? And so every time you think you've got a grasp on what it is that's possible because of, yeah. of what we're doing, then he comes out and says, "Well, you know, we could do X," and then you're like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> right." You know, so it's fascinating. Like exploring the boundaries of what is possible with right. stuff like NSX is just it's it's fascinating. Yeah. Wow, cool. All right, so. I think we're out of time for this week. So, Scott, where can everyone find out more about you? Absolutely. So I am uh, on Twitter as at Scott underscore low. Um, and uh, I write uh, when I have time, which is not as often as I would like, at uh, blog.scottlow.org. Um, so you can find me at those places. And you've got the, I saw something, was the books like in the top? Oh, the, yeah. The, so the, so the, latest, the latest book that I did with Nick Marshall, um, uh, Mastering Beast for 5.5. Yep. Um, was released just like this in the last week or so and now in the top 2,000 books on Amazon which doesn't sound like much when you think Amazon sells you know like yeah. lots and lots of books <laughs> being right. in the top 2,000 in yeah. my opinion is actually pretty cool yeah. so yeah that's absolutely. awesome congratulations thank you thank yeah. you very much alright so if you like the show please tell a friend or leave us a review on iTunes you can follow us on Twitter at the Cloudcast Net or on the web at thecloudcast.net where you can find links to everything Cloudcast thanks for listening 